Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini, three-part spirit, one-part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour, dress it with the olives of grace and empathy, sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of lovely cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's a woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, we've shown you miles of clips and tapes, Yet your only comeback is rudeness and sour grapes. Patriots are still locked up and labeled as terrorists while you take orders from fake doctors and fake scientists. The Dutch are determined, as are the French. Ruta and Macron will be thrown in a trench. Nonsensical, irrational, oh my God, let's crash it all. Silly, silly, silly little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can be mustered on any given day. And we are rarely successful, I will admit to that, but we are honor-bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love the odd shot now and then. Yes, we do. In fact, let me take a sip of today's cosmic cocktail and see if I made a good choice. Hold on, don't go away. It's tasty sippy time. <clears throat> Mm. Mm. I had doubts. This cocktail sort of reminded me of my first boyfriend. Exceptionally good to look at, lovely coloring and all that. But did it have substance? Um, mm. I think the cocktail definitely has more substance than my first boyfriend. We will stick with that. That's not a bad choice at all. Mm. All righty, to all my regular martini heads, it is lovely to be with you again. And if you're joining us for the first time, fair warning to you, this show is politically incorrect because we do not wish to erode the intellect. Martini heads are spirit-centered, free-thinking patriots. We stand for common sense, common courtesy, and for common decency. We don't do woke. We know the agenda behind the poke. We won't wear a face cloak, and we know the current New World Order puppet administration is a joke, a very bad and potentially dangerous joke, but a joke all the same. We are spirit-centered because we adore our creator in the high places, in the low places, in the middle ground, and in the spaces in between. Duality is not for us. For martini heads, there is no place where the divine will not show its face. Our goal is to let the spirit inhabit the human, to co-create heaven on earth. And we do it at every available opportunity because, my darlings, this show, 
This show is where top shelf distilled spirits meet the Holy Spirit, creating a divine union worthy of worship and sipping. On today's show, what do we have for you? Well, we will ponder pertinent points and pontificate upon them because we do love P words. We will have quack questions, answers and comments, maybe a little poem. We will talk about the Boston Tea Party, or Boston Tea Party, as they call it back there. And we will close with my favorite segment, of course, the cocktail of the day. Huzzah! So before we get on with the meat of the show, or if you're a vegetarian, the tofu of the show, let's take a moment to thank the folks who make intergalactic distribution of this show possible. And they are none other than Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington is the bomb. Need shungite? They have so much shungite, they could make a mountain big enough to bury Congress, and I wish they would. Do you need crystals, rocks, minerals, and other items metaphysical? They have everything from the whimsical to the quizzical. Would you like to know about scalar energy and other vibrations? They will fill you in on the foundations and applications. Mystical Wares, Mount Vernon, Washington, online or on location, you'll be sure to give them a standing ovation and a lovely bunch of people they are too lovely to deal with and always willing to share their knowledge. All right, uh, since we've been inundated with emails this week, well, that might be a slight exaggeration. We've had more than we usually have. Um, Let's get right into quack questions, answers and comments. Folks, If you would like to share your woes, your hoes, and your joys with martini heads all across the globe, send your emails to me, Arnie, at ArnieAvedician.com, or snail mail to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, America the Beautiful. And please, please let me know if and how you wish to be identified, or I shall be forced to refer to you as omit personal details. All right, darlings, let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. And let's see what pops out. Hmm. Our first missive is from Helmut, or Helmut, in Rochester, Minnesota. And Helmut says, what happens if the cabal wins the war against mankind? Aha. Helmut. Helmut. Helmutini. This is not a war anyone can afford to lose, darling. And mankind will only lose if we turn away from our divine nature. That's where the power is. And since the cabal have chosen, you know, not to co-create with the divine, and therefore they have to feed off our fear to survive, our focus should be on bypassing the corrupt programming we call fear. After all, it's not of the original divine blueprint for mankind. It was developed and refined and introduced for the sole purpose of disconnecting mankind from its God-given intuition. Now, Helmut, Helmutopolis, to answer your question, the Cabal will never win this war, because even if they were to gain the upper hand for a while, we will be in open rebellion for as long as it takes to turn the tables. One does not accept defeat at the hands of greed-fueled sociopaths 
any more than one makes a reservation at a restaurant in Mordor. Um, you know, you can't just walk into these places and you just don't accept things. It, it just, it's not working. We need mass non-compliance, mass apostasy. We shall fight them, Helmet, on the beaches. We shall fight them in the farthest reaches. We shall fight them in the papers. We shall expose them as pedophiles and dark matter shapers. We shall not flag or fail until the odious apparatus of Luciferian globalism is dismantled. We shall never surrender. Though they seek to enslave us, to subjugate and to starve us into compliance, we are sovereign beings created in the sole forges of our universal God. And when the tide is turned in our favor, and I have no doubt that it will, woe, I say, upon our subjugators, for having turned their back upon all that is whole and holy, they will cower in fear of their terrible judgment, and none will come to their aid. For evil such as theirs deserves no mercy, receives no mercy, and they will be held to full account. And on that day, for them, it will be a terrible day. And for us, it will be a day of rejoicing. Oh, my God, people, I, I think I just channeled Winston Churchill. I kid you not. My room is filling up with cigar smoke and I'm sort of in the mood for a glass of brandy. Also, it could be, you know, a little bit of advice, Arnie, don't drink a cocktail on an empty stomach. Okay, thank you, Helmut, for that. Uh, you know, go forth, my brother, with courage. We are going to win this war, no matter how long it takes. All righty, what else is in the fishbowl? Here's one from uh, Terry in San Jose, California, who asks, Arnie, what is up with all the weird weather? Is it black ops or is there really such a thing as climate change? Aha, the cult of climate change. Most certainly the greater part is black ops. You see, Terry, the machinery has been in place for a while now, so it doesn't need much of a nudge to cause the disturbances and anomalies. But Mother Earth is also doing her fair share of balancing out the energies. She does not appreciate the black ops assault on her person but she's used to it by now, and she knows how to set things right. As for climate change, we have been threatened with multiple end-of-day scenarios for well over a century, and not much has changed, has it? Earth is a body. There will be change in her body. This is inevitable and to be expected. But the whole establishment climate change doom and gloom that's propaganda. Their solution is to confine us to 15-minute cities where we should be grateful to eat bugs and soy paste and they will take care of the climate change by imposing taxes, which will get higher each year. Red flag, people, red flag. If the establishment says it can be fixed by we the people paying extra taxes, it's a hoax. Of course it is, and it pains me deeply that peeps have not yet figured this out. I remember the days when we could afford food and utilities all in the same week. How long ago was that now? Let me see. Oh, wait, it was about two years ago. Amazing, isn't it? How quickly the current puppet administration took this country from magic to tragic. What is even more amazing 
the people who think they, the current puppet administration, is doing a good job. I mean, there's a word for them in the British vernacular. It's, I mean, I don't want to say it, but it begins with W and ends in R. And it's not an insult. I just don't know what else to say. How can you think that this administration, which is doing everything it can to destroy America, which has a sacred purpose to lead the world in secular spirituality, for want of a better phrase. I mean, I suspect, what are you people doing? I have met tater tots with more awareness than you. Peeps prepare for massive fallout as more truths are disclosed daily because your non-playing character friends are going to implode or explode or hide away and erode or maybe hide their heads in the commode and accept the tattooed barcode. It's a free will universe, each to his or her own. But really and truly, when you get snow that doesn't melt under a blowtorch and you have strange weather patterns, mm, I have a feeling we should be asking a few more questions than we are now. But thank you, Terry, in San Jose, California, for bringing that up. It's a pet peeve of mine, the cult of uh, climate change. All right, let's take another quackism. Um, I have no permission for this, so this is from Omit Personal Details, who asks, Dear Ani, my question is about prosperity consciousness. I don't have any. <laughs> I can't seem to make enough money to live well. And when I do have money, I spend it. That's okay, darling. That's what money is for. I was told this is the way to do it, to spend it with the expectation that it will return tenfold. I say the affirmations. The money I spend does not return tenfold. I always have credit card debt. And with the price hikes of today, I often cannot afford to join my friends for a night out. Oh, darling, do you have any suggestions? Well, of course I do. I have tons of suggestions because that's me. I drink cocktails and I know things. Dear Omit, I suspect you can take a number and get in line with that one. The thing is, you see, darling, prosperity consciousness isn't just about money and affirmations are misunderstood and therefore oftentimes do not work. Where shall I start with this? Um, well, it starts with self-worth. Like it or not, ego programming has done a number on mankind. We say the words, I am divine. I am an unlimited expression of God. But we don't really believe it, not down to our core. We still think of ourselves as something outside of God. And, and as long as that is the case, prosperity will not be the mindset. Owning our true nature is the missing key to leading a functional and happy life. I say this 100 times each day, and people still look at me the way that deer look into headlights. We are conditioned to think that money comes from work, or investments, or the sale of goods, or holding up a 7-Eleven, or whatever, and it does, of course, in so much as those things will bring financial return, transaction by transaction, but prosperity consciousness, it's not about transactions. It's about understanding how energy flows. Currency is a current. And we humans are rather good at creating short circuits and not repairing them. 
I think the reason your tenfold rule and affirmations do not work is because you have not fully accepted that you are part of the divine flow of all that is. There is perhaps a fine line between conscious expectation and throwing it all to the wind to see what lands and what is blown away. We have to understand that what happens to us is not nearly as important as what happens within us. Consciousness is the sum total of our inner awareness. There's no such thing as outer awareness. And that means that we are responsible for controlling and refining our minds. What you feel you are, what you feel you deserve, dictates what you will receive, and that dictates what type of life you will have. In this age of centralized convenience, where we expect everything to be done for us and handed to us on a plate, this is difficult for people to accept, but it is the truth. Without this knowledge, the game of life and how to play it, it's just a series of daily frustrations, unmet expectations, and failed relationships, and all because we generally do not have an honest relationship with our own selves. That seems to be something very difficult for humans. The moment we accept responsibility and are diligent about changing our mindset, we step into our power and into alignment with the universe. A change in consciousness changes our life experience. Whether you like it or not, your fortune or lack thereof is up to you. It doesn't really matter what the world economy, such as it is, is up to. We can make money when the world is in recession, and we can go broke when the market is thriving. The quality of our thoughts dictate the conditions we experience. And humans make this common mistake. They ask God to give them something. What's wrong with that, Arnie? Well, this implies that God is not within us. It takes our power away. It's a bit like asking God for a favor and... If God deems you worthy, he performs a magic trick and shazam, shalabangawanga, you get the desired outcome. But that type of thinking, in my opinion, which is, of course, the only opinion that counts to me, is outdated and immature. You see, God is not some capricious bastard. <laughs> it is God's pleasure to give us as much treasure as we can comfortably hold. And if we feel to have too much... We can bless others by sharing. Prosperity consciousness. To make it really work, to make it really understood, love, we have to transcend this notion of human limitation. Walt Whitman once said, Henceforth I ask not good fortune, I myself am good fortune. And those are wise words, and that's the shift in consciousness I'm talking about. We are God's representatives on earth. Let's start acting like it. Now, I could pontificate on this for hours, but I would lose all of my listenership. So let me recommend a book for you. It's an older publication, but a beloved classic of mine. And it is called Spiritual Economics, The Prosperity Process by Eric Butterworth. I assure you it is a good investment and it will help you see things in a different, brighter 
light. Um, as for affirmations, if we are saying them to make them come true, they won't work. If we're saying them because we know them to be true and are repeating them because we want to weave the truth into the fabric of our being as we transcend the ego, then they will work and they will work very well. Thank you, Omit. Um, you know, uh, Louise Hay once said it's more difficult to talk about money than it is to talk about sex with people. And that should give us a clue as to how much of our self-worth is hung up in the prosperity consciousness. And self-worth will be eroded if we do not embrace our true nature. A self-realized being who knows it's a perfect expression of the universal God, just you know, having whatever expression that it wants on whatever planet. If you know that your humanity is just an experience that you're having, a temporal individualized experience, but you know that deep down you are God in a bod and that will never change, then you don't even need faith the size of a mustard seed, you see, because mustard seeds are tiny. Just get, just get direct knowing. Just take it for granted that you are divine. Try that. You'd be surprised. All right, what else do we have in the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity? Let's shake it up and see what's going on. Here's one from Rowena in Seattle, who asks, oh God, here we go again. All right, um, Ani, you have spoken out against gay marriage in the past. Why is that? You have commented negatively on gay pride events. You have also said many times that every household should have at least one gun. Can you explain why? All right, here we go again with um, people not listening properly. Uh, all right, Rowena, here we go. I have never spoken out against gay marriage. And once again, I am gay and that's not a secret. And it's also unimportant. But for the record, one more time. If two people, straight or gay, or a hedgehog and a parrot want to get married, knock yourselves out. It's not the marriage I'm against, not in the least. I've been with my partner for 33 years and counting. It is the involvement of the state in your marriage. It is none of the state's business. The state should not be involved in our personal lives. There was a time not so long ago when interracial marriage was illegal. Then it became legal and everyone went, huzzah. It should never have been illegal in the first place. It never needed official approval by the almighty and very dirty state. So when gay marriage became legal, I don't think it's legal in all the states, but you know, when it became legal, gay peeps rejoiced. We have arrived, they said. We have been shown favor by the powers that be. How advanced we are becoming as a society. Actually, darlings, it's quite the opposite. Let me have a, a little sip of my drinky poo. Hang on. Mm. 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 As always, these things grow on me. <clears throat> okay. Why is it quite the opposite, Arnie? I will tell you. Why would you look to the state for approval? Why would you look to the state for permission? Why celebrate updating your status as a taxable unit? Grow up, people. 
and untangle yourselves from this illusion that everything has to be state sanctioned and it harm none do as you please but the state does not need to get involved in these things can you not see how terrible a thing big government is as for the gay pride events I can only speak for myself and I'm entitled to my opinion. I simply see no reason to go to one. Who cares who you bonk? Being gay is neither here nor there to me. And consequently, it is neither here nor there to anyone I associate with. And even if it was, would I really want to celebrate it by watching a bunch of men in pink speedos on a float, sporting effeminate mannerisms, gyrating and thrusting their pelvises in my face? I'll let you all into a secret. Come, gather round, children. Listen to your Auntie Annie. Very few people care about your sexuality. They care if you're a decent person. A responsible adult with healthy boundaries and a positive outlook on life. Someone with common sense, a moral code. Someone willing to help others out if need be. It's only an issue if you make it an issue. I could say more, but would you take the time to listen all the way through? Or will you just become triggered, stop listening and write in your own version of what was said? As for guns... I support the Constitution of the United States of America, which is under attack. I am prepared to support it with my life, to the last drop of my blood, to my last bullet, and to my last drop of Kentucky bourbon. Yes, I have a lot of Kentucky bourbon in the house, so that might be a very long time until I get to the last drop of that. But I am particularly fond of the First and Second Amendments. With guns, we are citizens. Without guns, we are subjects at the mercy of Luciferian globalists and their New World Order agenda. That is why the misled liberals who hate America, who want to destroy this land and her sacred purpose, want to disarm us. They do, clearly. My response to that, though, is this. Come and take it, lovey, and good luck to you when you do. Okay, let's take another question. I'm getting a little hot and bothered here, and that's not like me. It just could be this cocktail. There's an awful lot of gin in it. Um, all right. Another question. But, you know, just one more comment. Okay. Oh, let me take a sip. Let me take a sip of this drink. Mm. Mm. Yummo, yummo. Okay. Just one more comment on the whole beholding to the state issue. If you're waiting for the state to give you permission for anything... You are begging for scraps under a table groaning with luxuries. You are attempting to fly with the wings of a sparrow when you were given the wingspan of an eagle, an American eagle, no less. Stop asking for permission and start draining the swamp. Hold those who have attempted mass depopulation via the scamdemic and death jab accountable. They are guilty of terrible crimes. They have unleashed great evil upon this realm. Stop supporting them. Starve the beast. The government loses and launders trillions of dollars each year and still has the audacity to ask us, the people, to account for every penny in income. 
only the insane would accept this as normal. And if at this point you feel that the current puppet administration is doing a fine job and you would vote for them again, I, I have nothing more to say to you because clearly you are delusional and you need some sort of psychiatric help. All right, let's move on to the other question now. And this is from Bobby Brackets, not my real name. <laughs> okay, in New Malden in the UK. And Bobby says, Dear Mad Shaman Person, It seems everyone today speaks of mindfulness and being in the now. I'm not sure they know what they're talking about. Now is the moment of power, they say. But these people, some of whom are friends, have less than perfect lives and spend a great deal of time talking about their problems. My question, Arnie, is this. What is your definition of being in the now? Bobby, not Bobby, Bobby. I too know people who read one book on mindfulness and laboring under the assumption that they have gained all the knowledge and wisdom in the universe cannot stop talking about it. It's funny, but I agree, it does get old. What is my definition of being in the now? You can't be fully present in the now unless you carry no grievance from the past. Until that is achieved, the power of now within you is limited. I would say that if you want to be powerful in this and every moment, you have to own your true nature, cosmic, divine, eternal, unlimited, and absolutely fearless. Where there is fear, ego programming will distract the mind from its potential and sow its seeds of corruption. If we want power in the now, we must make peace with the past. And that requires not only persistence, diligence, and focus, it requires self-honesty, something humans seem reluctant to engage in. Power in the now requires us to stop blaming others for our woes, no matter how heavily engaged or invested they are in the situation. It requires us to believe beyond all shadow of doubt that we are gods in bods, physical manifestations of the divine in perfect alignment with all that is. Why is this so difficult to grasp? Okay, yes, I know, religion and all that, blah, blah. But it's simple logic, really. The gods, God, whatever you want to call, the god of this universe or all that is, all of those gods are too great to hold just one form. So, ta-da, darlings, here we are. Gods in bods, enjoy. Bobby, not Bobby, don't be too hard on your friends. Mankind has been hoodwinked, I would say, for generations by devilish psyoptrics. Perhaps you could play your part in challenging your friends to do more than just quoting Louise Hay or Eckhart Tolle by asking them to give you examples of how to apply those teachings to daily life. Let's see how that goes. They will either rise to the challenge or they will shut up. Either way, Bobby not Bobby, it's a win-win situation for you. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, darling. Shall we take another question? Okay, one more and then we'll move on. This is from Gus, who says he is of no fixed address. Ani, have you read the Seth books? Yes, Gus, I have read the Seth books. 
well, that was easy. Um, we can probably take one more now. Um, this is from Doreen in Morecambe, which is in Lancashire, UK. Oh, my gosh, memories. All right. Doreen from Morecambe in Lancashire, UK says, Dear Mad Shaman Ani, I heard you have a bit of a thing for Eccles cakes. <laughs> I understand you will only eat the ones made by the real Lancashire Eccles cake company. My friends and I enjoyed your last show so much, we decided to send you a box of them. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. You should have it next week. And we have enclosed the tracking information. Keep on rocking the truth, Doreen and friends. Oh my God, Doreen, I am so excited. It is true, unless they are homemade, I will only eat Eccles cakes from the real Lancashire Eccles cakes people because they are delicious. They only use a certain type of raisin that grows somewhere in Greece. And their flaky pastry is just so flaky and yummy and delicious. And if you nuke them for about eight to 10 seconds, you know, don't do any more because they might explode. But I love them so much. In fact, I love them so much, I wrote a poem about them. Well, thank you, Doreen and friends. I eagerly await your generous and most welcome gift. Why don't I share it with you? Um, I, I don't mean I'm going to share my Ethel's cakes with the listeners. Why don't I share the poem with you? What an excellent segue into our next segment, A Tiny Pat of Poetry. Yes, folks, after a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky-poo, and writing really bad yet occasionally brilliant non-peer-reviewed poetry. For you, my darlings, here is my poem in praise of Eccles Cakes. Normally, I would do this with a Lancashire accent, but the people in Lancashire object to my Lancashire accent. They say it's terrible and it's more like a flavor of the North as opposed to a true Lancashire one. So when we actually record this proper, I'm going to ask uh, Jan Shaw um, <laughs> of the Cosmic Creating Show to record it. Although Jan, you're sounding very well spoken these days. You have to get back to that nice Lancashire accent. So here we go. In praise of the Eccles Cakes. Oh, divine concoction, bathed in good butter, those who dislike thee belong in the gutter. Thou art so fluffy, thou art so flaky, filled with sweet raisins, and then we bake thee. A cup of strong tea and an Eccles for eating. Nothing tastes better and is well worth repeating. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, copyright Library of Congress 2019, as are all my poems for what it is worth to anyone. Well, my darlings, I think we can probably wrap it up for quack for this week. Let me have a little sip. Um, oh, I fancy an Eccles cake now. I can't wait till they arrive. I will be looking at that tracking number every single day. Mm. Mm. Yummo, okay. The cocktail has officially grown on me. Mm, yummy. Martini heads, thank you for listening. Thank you for writing in. We do love to know that you're out there and we do appreciate the time that you take to let us know what rocks you and what fucks you. <laughs> All right then, what should we talk about now? 
I have been really gung-ho on reviewing American civics lately and American early history. And I do love a cup of tea. So let's talk about the Boston Tea Party. And I want to thank my friends at the Boston Tea Party Museum in Boston um, for this information. Now, what was the Boston Tea Party? Most of us have an image of colonial Americans tossing boxes of tea into the sea. A great sin, in my opinion, but not nearly as great as taxation without representation. So let's explore what the Boston Tea Party was all about. We do know that it was organized and carried out by a group of patriots led by Samuel Adams, who made lovely beer and still does, and they were known as the Sons of Liberty. And the Sons of Liberty were made up of males from all walks of colonial society. Uh, artisans, craftsmen, business owners, tradesmen, apprentices, common laborers, all free men. And they organized to defend their rights and to protest and undermine British crown rule. So it would be the simplest of terms to say that it happened as a result of taxation without representation, because it is a tad more complex than that. The American colonists definitely believed Britain was unfairly taxing them, especially to pay for the expenses that England um, incurred during the French and the Indian War. And additionally, the colonists believed Parliament did not have the right to tax them because, well, of course, the American colonies were not represented in Parliament. That's where we have the taxation without representation thing. So they're a bit miffed at the beginning of all this. Since the beginning of the 18th century, tea had been regularly imported to the American colonies. By the time of the Boston Tea Party, we estimate that the colonists drank approximately 1.2 million pounds of tea each year. So Britain had this notion it could make even more money off this lucrative tea trade by imposing taxes onto the American colonies. In effect, what happened the cost of British tea became high, and in response, American colonists began a very lucrative industry of smuggling tea from the Dutch and from other European markets, because that's what you do when people make food and drink too expensive for you. So these smuggling operations, always illegal. Why is smuggling illegal? How silly. It violated the Navigation Acts, which had been in place since the middle of the 17th century. And the smuggling of tea, of course, was undercutting the lucrative British tea trade. In response to all of this uh, underhandedness, in 1767, Parliament passed the Indemnity Act, which repealed the tax on tea and made British tea the same price as the Dutch tea, which is the one that was being smuggled in, right? So the Indemnity Act, it cuts down on American tea smuggling but later in 1767, a new tax on tea was put into place, and that's the Townsend Revenue Act. And this was not a very popular tax, of course, no taxes are, but this also taxed glass, lead, oil, paint, and paper. Many, many boycotts and protests. Um, the Townsend Revenue Act was repealed in, not fully, but it was repealed in 1770. But in 1773, the Tea Act was passed and granted the British East India Company a monopoly on tea sales in the American colonies. 
So the smuggling of tea grew rampant and was a lucrative uh, business venture for American colonists, such as John Hancock and Sam Adams. I'm very proud to know that my founding fathers smuggled tea. But this Townsend Revenue Act uh, tea tax, it remained in place despite proposals to have it waived. American colonists were outraged, of course, as they should be, and they believed this Tea Act was a tactic to gain colonial support for the tax already enforced. So, you know, the direct sale of tea by agents of the British East India Company to the American colonies, it undercut the business, legitimate business of colonial merchants. The smuggled tea becomes more expensive than the British East India Company tea. And Sam Adams and Hancock, they were trying to protect their economic interests by opposing this Tea Act. Um, you know, I mean, why wouldn't you? How do you sell this, though, to the American public? You don't just say, well, I want to keep my smuggling business intact, darlings. So what they would say, they would sell it to the patriots on the pretext of the, um, you know, the abolition of human rights um, by being taxed without representation. That's really what it is. This is not about my smuggling business, people. No, not at all. It's about taxation without representation. Well, when did this actually take place? December 16, 1773. It took place on a cold winter night, because if anyone's been to Boston in the winter, ooh, it's cold, right? 1773. Um, and according to eyewitness testimonies, it occurred between the hours of 7 and 10 p.m., and the whole thing lasted approximately three hours. And this all took place in Griffin's Wharf, Dartmouth. And uh, let's see, uh, Dartmouth, Dartmouth, was that one of the ships? Yes, okay. Yes, it was. It's coming back to me. Hold on, hold on. I, I have notes here somewhere. So we're at Griffin's Wharf on December 16th, 1773. Three ships were moored there, the Beaver, the Dartmouth, and the Eleanor. All right. Um, and the original um, location of this place doesn't exist because of landfalls, etc. Um, and, you know, Boston's rapid expansion in the 19th century. But at that time in the 18th century, Griffin's Wharf was a bustling center for maritime commerce and shipping. OK, um, there's a historical marker there for you and a whole museum if you want to go check it out. But the actual party itself was witnessed by thousands and there were hundreds of participants, only 116 of whom were documented, and many of whom actually left the area right after for fear of capture and imprisonment. The core participants, we are told, disguised themselves as Mohawk or, um, you know, local Native American Indians. And by all accounts, the disguises were not very good but it was suggested that it wasn't supposed to be a disguise so that people thought they were Native Americans. Um, it was more a symbolic thing, as if to say, look at us, look at the way we are dressed. We are American, not British. So we have a little uh, observation here from one John Andrews who wrote the following in 1773. They say the actors were Indians. Whether they were or not to a transient observer, they appeared as such, being clothed in blankets with the heads muffled and copper-colored countenances, each being armed with an hatchet or axe and pair pistols, 
nor was their dialect different from what I conceive these geniuses to speak, as their jargon was unintelligible to all but themselves. Boston Tea Party participant George Hughes recorded the following. Here we go. It was now evening, and I immediately dressed myself in the costume of an Indian, equipped with a small hatchet, which I and my associates denominated the tomahawk, and with which, and a club, after having painted my face and hands with coal dust in the shop of a blacksmith, I repaired to Griffin's Wharf, where the ships lay that contained the tea. When I first appeared in the streets after being thus disguised, I fell in with many who were dressed, equipped, and painted as I was, and who fell in with me and marched in order to the place of our destination. On the night of the Boston Tea Party, three ships that had sailed from London carrying cargoes of British East India Company tea were moored in Boston Harbour. Again, those three ships were the Beaver, the Dartmouth, and the Eleanor. The Dartmouth arrives in Boston November 28, 1773, the Eleanor on December the 2nd, and the Beaver on December 15th. Each one of these three ships carried more than 100 chests of British East India Company tea. The Sons of Liberty, on the night of December 16, 1773, offloaded the tea cargoes of all three ships. By the way, um, it is mentioned that there were supposed to be four ships sailing from London, not just three. Um, one was the William, but he ran aground off Cape Cod, December the 10th, in a violent um, storm. And the cargo of 58 chests of the British East India Company was salvaged, salvaged, um, or salvaged if you want, but I think it's salvaged, before the William was abandoned. A portion of the salvaged tea cargo ended up in Boston, um, which was promptly destroyed by the Sons of Liberty. So Sam Adams recorded the following about the fate of the William. He says, the only remaining vessel which was expected with this detested article is by the act of righteous heaven cast on the shore on the back of Cape Cod, which has often been the sad fate of many a more valuable cargo. Now, we all think, we all assumed that because the tea was from the British East India Company, that the ships themselves were British. If the ships themselves were British, the Sons of Liberty may have destroyed them, but they were not. The ships were built in America and they were owned by the Americans, but the cargo ship of tea they were carrying from London to Boston was owned by the British East India Company. Okay, this is important to know because the ships were American. The tea came from, in, uh, from, from well, the tea came from India, but it came from the British East India Company. Um, you know what, I just, I don't think the tea was Indian. That's my mistake. The tea, yes, the Boston Tea Party tea, that was Chinese. That was definitely Chinese. I mixed it up with India because it was a black tea. Remember, you know, East India Company, uh, Opium Wars? selling opium going to china yeah definitely yes all right i got this straight now the ships were british the tea belonged to the british but the tea was originally from china black tea from china so let's talk about the damage that was done and how it was done 
1773 currency, just under 10,000 pounds worth of damage was done. That is a lot of money, people. We're told 340 chests of British East India Company tea weighing over 92,000 pounds, which is roughly 46 tons, um, were smashed open with axes and dumped onto Boston Harbor December 16th, 1773. The damage the Sons of Liberty caused by destroying the tea in today's money, in today's money, it's worth more than $1,700,000. Mm. So according to some modern estimates, the destroyed tea would have brewed 18,523,000 cups of tea. That's a lot of tea. The destruction, of course, was a very costly blow to the British. And besides destroying the tea, historical accounts record no damage was done to any of the three ships, the crew, or any other items on board the ships except for one broken padlock. And the padlock was the personal property of one of the ship's captains and was promptly replaced the next day by the Patriots. So great care was taken by the Sons of Liberty to avoid the destruction of personal property. All they wanted to do was kick the British in the nuts, not their fellow Americans. So we know that nothing was stolen or looted from the ships, not even the tea. We are told one participant, one participant, one very naughty Son of Liberty, tried to steal some of the tea, but was reprimanded and stopped. They were very, very careful about how this looked and how the action was carried out. They wanted to make sure that nothing besides the tea was was damaged um, because they really wanted to have a very clean slate because this is the start, really, of the revolution, isn't it? Anything that was... Um, they even swept the decks clean after they threw all the tea overboard. And anything that was moved was put back in its proper place. And the crews of the ships attested to that. They said there was no damage to any of the ships except for the destruction of their cargoes of tea. Oh, I'm getting very thirsty talking about all this tea. Hold on, let me have a sip. Mm. Mm. Yum. Did anyone die during the Boston Tea Party? No. No violence, no confrontation between patriots. Um, all the Tories and the British soldiers garrisoned there in Boston. No members of the crew of the Beaver, the Dartmouth or the Eleanor were harmed. So we could say this was the first organized act of rebellion against British rule. So the Sons of Liberty were careful about how it was planned and executed. Um, only one member of the Sons of Liberty, um, one Francis Akeley, was caught and imprisoned for his participation. He was the only person ever to be arrested for the Boston Tea Party. So the British were pretty miffed about this, by the way, and they shut Boston Harbor down because we, we had just thrown 92,000 pounds of tea. And you know what? It caused the harbor to smell really, really badly. And the British said they were going to shut down the harbor until all of the money was recovered, you see? And they did this thing called the, you know, it was implemented. Um, they had this thing in 1774 called the Intolerable Acts. 
also known as the Boston Port Act, I think. The intolerable acts um, were the outrage and unified the American colonists even more against British rule. And in addition to that, they started off the Massachusetts, gov Massachusetts, that is not an easy word when you're having a drink, Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, the Quartering Act, the Quebec Act. American colonists responded with protests and coordinated resistance by convening the first Continental Congress in September and October of 1774 to petition the British to repeal the Intolerable Acts. So huzzah for the Boston Tea Party, the first significant act of defiance by American colonists. The implications were enormous. George Washington, here's a little tidbit. While he was in absolute favor of the revolution, obviously, he didn't approve of the destruction of the tea. We want to know why. Why, George, why? It was the sensible thing to do. He it went against his personal beliefs about property ownership. So I can actually understand that. When was it called the Boston Tea Party? Well, it was around the 1820s, actually. Before that, it was uh, titled um, The Destruction of the Tea, which doesn't really have any you know, romance to it, does it? Oh, chaps, do you remember the destruction of the tea? What? What about the Boston Tea Party? Ooh, that was a romantic time. Little known fact, there was a second Boston Tea Party three months later, March 1774. 60 men disguised themselves and boarded the fortune to throw 30 chests of tea overboard. But it was a much smaller protest. It didn't get the original uh, attention. Did the British ever get paid for this? No, they didn't actually. Ha ha. But Benjamin Franklin offered to pay for the tea that was dumped. He was very wealthy. He was very eccentric and he was very generous. He did offer to pay for it um, on condition that the British open the, the port again, the harbour, but they refused. And uh, the British consequently were never compensated. So a very expensive protest, if we measure it in today's financial terms, I mean, you know, $1,700,000, wow. But it lit the fire under the colonial Americans and that... Um, that pissed off the crown and led to more acts of tyranny, which in turn lit more fuses that convinced Americans that all out revolution was needed and worth dying for. Now, I've read several accounts um, of the, you know, the, the Boston Tea Party. I'm a big fan of reading many, many different versions of the same story. Um, and, you know, I think I want to do another podcast down the road that is just dedicated to interesting tidbits of early American colonial history leading up to the first hundred years of our government. There's so much excitement um, all around the creation of America for me. I have known about America having a sacred purpose from my shaman work, um, from I'm not going to call them scriptures, but from teachings that were handed down long before anyone knew America existed. So this is all very, very special for me. And I get very, very excited when, you know, the colonials get up there and just start to go. Goodbye, George. Goodbye, Britain. You know, oh, it's just a beautiful thing. It just oh, it, it, it excites me terribly. 
All right, my darling, we're not quite at the end of the show, but there's a couple of things I do want to mention. Do visit my website from time to time, arniavidistian.com, and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. And it will give you all sorts of little tidbits, uh, silly poems and all of that. But it will also give you discounts that are not posted on the main website. And it will give you the dates of my upcoming events. Right now, um, we're not meeting in person still. Most things are still Zoom. But the Cosmic Conversations, which happen at the end of each month, are quite fun. Uh, in, let's see, we didn't do one this month, but in April we are going to talk about Hildegard of Bingen and Julian of Norwich, two women who I adore. And then in May we are going to do a class on Ayn Rand and uh, objectivism. Um, Ani, don't drink and say long words, because I love Ayn Rand, I love her cold logic, I just resonate to her, and I want to share that love with you all. All right, my darlings, oh my gosh, it's getting very close to that time. I think we're going to wrap it up for this week. I'm going to finish my drink if you'll just let me take two more sips. Ooh. That was one. Okay, this next one's going to be a big one. Hold on. Mm. Ooh, done. Definitely feeling the buzz. So now I can say, <laughs> I finished my drink. And that always means the end of the show. I do hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it because I had a blast. And if you didn't enjoy it, that is a whole hour of your life that you will never, ever get back. And, you know, I'm just so sorry if that was the case. Today's real life cocktail was a vintage classic from a bygone era. And it's, of course it is. It's the Boston cocktail. And here's how you make it. Three quarters of an ounce, or slightly more, of dry gin. I just use Bombay Dry. I, I don't like the mouthfeel of a Plymouth gin. So dry gin. Three quarters of an ounce, or more, of apricot brandy. I'm using an Armenian um, brandy, Ararat Aged. Um, and thank you to Boros and Vartan for sending that to me, because I can't afford this. I think it's like 110 bucks a bottle. Definitely worth it. Um, you're going to need the juice of a quarter of a lemon, and you're going to need a quarter ounce of grenadine. And you take everything and you shake it well over cracked ice, you strain it, and you serve it in your favorite cocktail glass. I would recommend a Nick and Nora glass for this one. And I must say, it is quite lovely. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink, and that doesn't mean, doesn't mean you can make a double or a triple or a quadruple, one drink is all you need. Darlings, I'm Annie, mad as the day is long, Avidician. This was a metaphysical martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, don't drink too much, turn off your television sets, and above all, sweet darlings, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini with Ani Alpatisian, The Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. 
Thank you.